This is episode number 663 with Alexander Holden Miller, Senior Research Engineering Manager at Meta AI. Today's episode is brought to you by Epic LinkedIn Learning Instructor, Keith McCormick. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. I am over the moon to be able to share today's unforgettable episode with Alex Holden Miller with you. Because of its extraordinary popularity, most people assume that the biggest achievement in AI in the past year is ChatGPT. I would argue, however, that the biggest recent achievement in AI is an algorithm called Cicero that was developed by researchers working at the tech giant Meta. As published in the prestigious academic journal Science in November, Cicero is capable of using natural language conversation to coordinate with humans, make strategic alliances, and ultimately win in an extremely complex board game called Diplomacy. Excelling in a game with incomplete information and vastly more possible states of play than games previously conquered by AI like chess and Go would be a wild feat in and of itself, but Cicero's capability to converse and negotiate in real time with six other human players in order to strategize victoriously is the really mind-boggling capability. To detail for you how the game of diplomacy works, why Meta chose to tackle this game with AI, and how they developed a model that competes in the top decile of human diplomacy players without any other players catching a whiff that Cicero could possibly be a machine, I'm joined in today's episode by Alexander Holden Miller, a co-author of the Cicero paper. Alex has been working in Meta AI's fundamental AI research group, FAIR, for nearly eight years. He currently serves as a senior research engineering manager in the prestigious AI lab. He has supported researchers working in most subdomains in machine learning, but has been especially involved in conversational AI research and more recently, reinforcement learning and planning. He holds a degree in computer science from Cornell University and is currently pursuing a master's in computer science from New York University. Today's episode will appeal most to technical listeners, but much of the episode will be broadly fascinating to anyone who'd like to appreciate the absolute state of the art in AI today. All right, you ready for this extraordinary episode? Let's go. Alex, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. Awesome to have you here live with me in New York. Thank you for making the trek. Uh, downtown, although I guess not far from Meta's office. Well, and I'm just 15 minutes up in the West Village, so nice. it's easy. Um, and we've got a really exciting episode today. I've wanted to film an episode with you for a long time. We were scheduled to do an episode in spring of 2022, a year ago, and you got COVID right before. I did. <laughs> so there's this episode that came out with Noam Brown, episode number 569, where we're live on stage at MLConf in New York. And because we were really down to the wire on whether your COVID would go away enough, because it was like days before we were waiting to get like a negative test back. And very last minute, Noam uh, stepped up, was able to do it. It's an amazing episode. And luckily he has expertise that is quite different from yours. So we were able to dig deep into different topics than we will today. 
But it was really funny filming it live because we'd uh, paid to have this video made that was in a loop um, alongside the stage for all the audience members there. And so I had your face and name <laughs> and title huge beside me on the stage. Uh, and it was Noam Brown. <laughs> um, but Alex Holden Miller, I didn't get your name and face for my apartment here on some big screens. <laughs> But we'll still, we'll make it work. I guess I could have had that rolling. <laughs> That'd be funny. Um, so we knew each other socially. We met at a brunch, actually, in New York. Um, I guess a little more than a year ago. And it seemed like a great idea right off the bat to have a podcast episode with you because we got talking about what you're doing at Meta. And it's so fascinating. And we're actually, the timing now is even better because a year ago when we were chatting... A lot of what you could have disclosed about what you're working at at Meta would have been under wraps because it was it hadn't been published yet. But now it's been published to great success. Super exciting and congratulations. So your team recently published a model called Cicero, which could play the board game Diplomacy. Describe the game of Diplomacy. Uh, I hadn't candidly heard of it before we met at that brunch a year ago, but it's clearly a very popular game around the world. Um, to me, it sounded a lot like Risk when I first heard of it. Yeah, so I actually hadn't heard of it before this team started either. Um, so Diplomacy, we kind of like to say it's, it's a combination between Risk, where you have a, a map, in this case of Europe, um, there's different territories that have uh, either fleets or armies in them, um, and your goal is to take over more territory. Um, but then also maybe some combination of poker as well, because there is this aspect where um, pe people are all kind of doing things at the same time. There's hidden information. You don't really know what's going to happen in the future. Um, unlike Risk, where it's just turn-based, like you each do your move and you can see exactly what the board state is at all times, mm -hmm. um, apart from you know your like bonus cards. Um, and Survivor, uh, where there's this aspect of like, diplomacy and negotiation and even at times backstabbing that um, you kind of have to deal with at the same time as the rest of the board. Um, and so the project started about three and a half years ago um, when uh, Noam and some others um, who you had on the podcast before um, were, Noam had just been working on poker before, uh, which you can hear a lot about and it's definitely very interesting. It was kind of looking to say like from poker where do we go now? Um, and kind of said, what is the hardest board game that we could possibly do? Um, and landed on diplomacy um, for a variety of reasons uh, that we can talk about. But um, basically, each of these different aspects of like risk of, of poker, of survivor, add different elements of challenge to AI. Um, and so decided like, okay, you know, this is something that could take 10 years to solve. Like, let's get working on it, like get cracking and, and solve this problem. And uh, fortunately, it didn't take ten. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. Um, but just three years, and even a year ago, you weren't sure. At least you couldn't tell me, <laughs> like how well it seemed to be going. Um, and yeah, I, it it is an immensely hard game because of how you have all of this natural language dialogue happening. So we just in the last couple of months. There's been a lot of popular press, obviously, about algorithms like ChatGPT that are capable of carrying on a compelling conversation. But that is brand new, and that's around the same time that your paper came out. So you'd ha you had been developing these 
um, these natural language models that were capable of interacting with human players so convincingly that the algorithm is able to uh, convince them to, to be involved in uh, teaming up against other countries. Um, uh, and it has to be able to think very far ahead. So unlike something like ChatGPT, which is just using past bits of the conversation and information within its uh, parameter weights from all the information that it's tuned on, in this case with your model with Cicero, there's this, in my view, much more complex aspect where it needs to be able to be planning ahead and thinking about how it can strategize with natural language, um, with all these other human players and win the game. Which also, um, I, I remember when we were talking a year ago, you were, at that time, it seemed like mostly focused on a version of the game that did not have the natural language aspects. Yeah, so I, I think everything you described is definitely the hardest part. Like the, the language, the interacting with other people, like this is the hardest part. Uh, that being said, um, maybe I can even like walk back to some of the uh, parts without that, right? Exactly to say the, the version of the game without language, because I, I think it helps to also introduce like all these other aspects that are very difficult about the game. Um, because first of all, the uh, well, there aren't that many pieces on the board compared to say something like Go. Um, the every single unit on the board has a bunch of different choices for, for what it can do, right? Um, so you have different types of, like you can, you can move a unit, you can keep it where it is, you can have it support another unit, um, you can have fleets like convoy armies across bodies of water. Um, and these moves can be done to any of the territories that are around them. And so because of this, the um, action space hugely explodes, right? So instead of something like 100 to 200 possible actions in board state and go, it's something like 10 to 20. Um, Whoa. And like the number of possible board states is like more than go, than go is compared to chess. Oh, right? wow. Um, and so even just starting with that, right. super complicated. This is, um, I don't want to completely derail everything that you're saying, but you uh, obviously know this game really well now. And when you started working on this project three years ago, you didn't know it. Are you yourself now a decent diplomacy player? I, I think I'm a, I'm a decent diplomacy player. I actually had, um, I, I got into playing quite a bit online on webdiplomacy.net, um, one of the more popular sites for, for playing the game online, um, and had the great pleasure to go to a couple in-person diplomacy tournaments. Um, what we're actually- Is it not the, as a competitor? Or as a competitor? As a competitor. No um, way. And played in them. Um, it was actually the North American Championships this year and last year. What? And the World Championships this last year. Wow. I'm sorry. In 2021 and 2022. Right, um, right, 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 right. And I did not place highly, um, but I would absolutely recommend anybody who's interested to, to try out these tournaments. There's quite a few all over. Um, and the players are amazing. And it's like, it's a very intense and emotional experience. And I, I think... I even feel like I like learn things about myself and like my personality <laughs> that like I really had to grapple with when you're like sitting across this board with someone and you're like trying to convince them to work with you and you're like how do I convince you that like you should work with me and that I'm not lying to you and how do I know that you're not lying to me and like right. all of this um, was actually it was a big challenge and it was uh, wow. quite a lot of fun to get into it. So how does that I I I said I didn't want to derail you now I am derailing you a bit but when you're in one of these big tournaments these human tournaments. How is it set up? Like, there's individual rooms with like. 
Yeah. So you have you'll have a, a board and seven of you sitting around the table. Yeah. Um, each of you playing one of the great powers in Europe in the year 1900. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's kind of like leading up to World War One. This idea that like diplomacy could actually be what uh, prevents like the the bloodshed and like the failure of diplomacy led to all of the conflict. And so here you are with the chance to come to a diplomatic solution. Um, uh. The founder of the game actually said like the ideal outcome is that everybody just ties. Um, and in fact, uh, many, if not most games actually end in a tie and not uh, an actual winner. Oh, really? Um, like a seven-way a seven tie? So a seven-way tie is very uncommon. Uh, and and that's, a, that's kind of the ideal diplomatic setting because nobody is able to actually overpower anybody else because everybody just maintains like diplomatic right. stalemate, right? Um, it's kind of a boring game if it goes <laughs> that way. Um, I played in, in one that did. Um, and usually everybody is angry and then satisfied. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you, you stand around the board and then um, for each turn there's 15 minutes on the clock and you can like pair off um, and just grab someone, go talk to them away from the board and then come back, make your deals and create your alliances. And then you all write down your moves, you put them in the center and then the timer stops and all the moves just happen all at the same time. So everybody just has to sit and watch while like right. all of the pieces are moved around the board and you find out whether your potential ally has uh, actually gone through with what they promised they would do mm -hmm. or if instead they've made, moved all their units up to your border and are about to just walk into the centers that you left open right. because you trusted them too so much. That's the complete um, information part that you're talking about. Whereas in Go, in Chess, in Risk, you can see at any given time you know what the state of play is but because people make their moves in advance, secretly, and then everybody kind of exposes their moves after they've decided on what they will be, yeah. that there's this, there's this hidden element that's more like poker. Exactly. Nice, cool. Well, it's great to understand that kind of broader context around how the game is played, especially these in-person human tournaments. In order for this uh, diplomacy AI Cicero to be able to play, I guess that was only, that's only ever been used in uh, online tournaments, right? Where there's no way for people to know that it's a machine. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, we did not have the ambition to try and hook it up to like a speech to text system with like <laughs> proper like prosody and emotions and all of that in order <laughs> to try and negotiate with people. Yeah, yeah, live. So uh, we kept it all to text. Um, Just put it in sunglasses and a trench coat and no one will notice. <laughs> Um, or put put like you know the uh, the like monument next to the the table. Although you need to then also give it wheels so it can can drive <laughs> away to have private conversations. Um, um, yeah. So online, and I guess so. Is it? Did you say uh, net diplomacy? Web diplomacy? Webdiplomacy.net. Yep. Recently, in episode number six hundred and fifty-five, Keith McCormick and I discussed the importance of managing the machine learning lifecycle effectively. To allow you to learn about Keith's approach to all phases of the lifecycle, he's kindly making his Predictive Analytics Essentials course available for free. All you have to do is follow Keith McCormick on LinkedIn and follow the special hashtag SDSKeith. The link gives you temporary course access, but with plenty of time to finish it. Mastering machine learning project management is just as important as learning algorithms. Check out the hashtag SDSKeith on LinkedIn to get started right away. I recommend it. Go there. Try out the game. Um, nice. and, and if people do go there, they won't now theoretically know whether they're playing against a human or Cicero. So our, we do not actually have our AI running on this site, although it's possible <laughs> that somebody has uh, stood up a copy of it. 
Um, our model weights are available by request on our GitHub. Um, but there is you can play against a copy of our no press uh, one versus one bot. Um, so we in order to simplify the game, we actually I think we need the no press. Yes. So no press just means there's no conversation between people. Right. Um, whereas full press is, is what we used to say that you can talk to the other players. Right. Um, it's kind of meant to uh, uh, speak to an older version of the game where people would uh, play by mail and, and you would call like the conversations like press releases from the countries. Oh, um, that's wild. So people would play over the course of months. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The game's around since like the 1950s. Um, apparently, very uh, early online version. Um, <laughs> Done by post. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Apparently, Kissinger really loved the game, and um, I think maybe JFK too. Yeah, it sounds like there's like real life skills you can be learning from playing this game. Yeah, become more diplomatic. All right. So the last time that I interrupted you, uh, you were about to tell us about how anybody can go and play the no press version of this algorithm right now, right? Yeah, so this specifically is a, a version of the game called France versus Austria where there's only two players. And we kind of went back to this because it simplifies the game a little bit. It still has uh, the much higher scale than Go that I already mentioned. Um, but in this setting, then you can still use uh, a, a modified version of old techniques of uh, self-play reinforcement learning to teach the, the bot the game. Um, there, We had to do tricks to deal with the scale. Um, there, there's a model that we developed called Dora uh, because of particularly ways that this model introduced exploration techniques. Um, you know, when you oh, have I to, <laughs> how do you how do you get a model to sample from uh, ten to twenty possible actions? So it actually like has any learning signal to choose which uh, moves should it should get better from? Um, and there's ways that you can kind of like narrow this down to the moves that are most likely. Right, most of those moves are terrible to play, and like uh, a human would never even play them. Right. Um, and so first kind of solved like the one versus one scaling problem. And indeed, you can train a model from self-play from scratch uh, to play one versus one, and it can do very well. And you can play against this, and no uh, press. you'll lose every time with no language. Right, right. Um, then even just adding the multiplayer component now makes it extremely difficult. If you train a model from scratch using self-play, it cannot compete at all with uh, if you put it against six humans. Um, Whereas the one versus one bot can destroy you. Um, like very good players can can compete with it, but it's very, very, very good. Um, and this is because even in the setting where you don't talk to each other, um, there is both competition and cooperation. And you have to actually play in line with the human norms in order to be competitive. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, two powers who are next to each other, um, even without talking to each other, can still ally just by moving their pieces away from one another, right? And then after doing so, uh, and let's say each one takes territory, now they have another choice. They build a new unit. Do they send it to attack the other person? Or do they say, no, this is working great, and keep pushing units to the other front line? You don't have enough units to cover all of your sides. And so a lot of times it's very appealing to like keep them moving in the same direction so that uh, and just like bank on that trust right. while maybe leaving just enough of a guard force to like deter them being tempted to turn around and attack you. Right. Um, and so this like interplay between like this, this trust that is barely established, right? Cause there's, there's not even a promise. There's no conversation on it. And like how you're moving your units around the board. Um, this comes from a lot of human norms around like reciprocity and trust and like what, 
when you see somebody move a unit in this way, what does it mean? What are they signaling to me? Um, and so actually, no press diplomacy because of this is often called gunboat diplomacy. Um, mm. Because it's like, it, it's just about where, where do you put your guns and not right. like, what are you actually saying yeah, uh, directly yeah. to the other person? You're, it's kind of mm -hmm. obvious from the way that the board is set up at any given time, like, oh, you have all of these <laughs> units right up against this one border and this other border, you haven't needed them so far because this other power has been leaving you alone. So you just kind of assume that that momentum will continue until maybe you start to notice, oh, that other power has now like, it's taken over the territory of all of the other territories it was butting up against. Now I'm the only one left. Right. Like, uh -oh. I have to attack them <laughs> to stop them from attacking me. And um, this definitely is all at play. Um, and in general, diplomacy actually does have a strong like stop the leader aspect. Um, because if there's a tie, everybody shares the score. Um, but if one person gets more than half of the board, that person yeah. wins outright and everyone else gets zero. Yeah, I, um, I don't play Diplomacy, but I do play Settlers of Catan, which is on my shelf here. Uh, viewers can see in the YouTube version. So like my board games are limited to chess, backgammon, Settlers of Catan, and Exploding Kittens, uh, <laughs> which we got into as a family at Christmas and is a very short, fun game that you can play with people of all ages. Um, <laughs> but in Settlers of Catan, I, have, I, I tend to be strong early which ends up being to my detriment, because then everyone gangs up on me. Oh, oh definitely. Um, but yeah, so if you, if you want to be competitive in, in, this, uh, in this game, even without talking to each other, you have to follow these human norms, right? Like uh, a self-play agent, um, a lot of times will learn things like uh, just attack everybody on all sides. Um, or you have an alliance, like, it seems like a, a human would think that they're an alliance, and like just betray it right away, because who cares? Because that's how the bot plays. Like the bot doesn't take it personally if it gets betrayed. It just keeps playing from from where it stands, right? Like it doesn't. It hasn't learned this uh, kind of human behavior of uh, like vengeance, right? Like uh, a human, when betrayed, often will then spend the rest of the game just trying to make the player who uh, betrayed them lose instead of actually like right. playing to maximize their score. Didn't even care to win. Exactly. Like... Exactly. And and across multiple games, this is actually a winning strategy because it teaches people to be very careful about. It betraying other humans, right? Mm -hmm. um, but and the bot doesn't learn that in the self-play. So um, when the bots are playing online, they have like a name that is a human sounding name, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> um, bot 3000. Um, and so, so then people can end up, in, even in these online tournaments, do you end up playing, you would keep noticing that bot 3000 uh, was like in the same games as you? Yeah, so all of the online games um, were played where the game takes place anonymously. Um, and so you don't, like the other uh, powers are just names for their powers, right? Like right, they're playing right. against France, uh, England, Germany, and not, uh, not against like bot1250, right? <laughs> um, yeah, and so the, the names are revealed afterwards. Um, and so afterwards, player, people were able to look back and see like these were the bots. So then, then you could maybe notice, right? Um, and in fact, basically to deal, so we dealt with this problem. Um, we basically, the, the trick is um, regularize towards human behavior. So take a data set of human behavior um, and regularize two, a couple aspects of the model. So first is the uh, planning procedure. So the, uh, we have a, you know, in, in Chess or Go, you would have Monte Carlo tree search. 
Um, and you can apply this algorithm there too. Um, in diplomacy, it's more complicated because you can't just like roll out forward when you can't when it's non-deterministic, right? When all the moves are hidden. You don't know what the other players are going to make. You can't roll out into the future in the same way. Oh, yeah. You have to do this more complex planning process. Um, and in that planning process, we uh, do regularize towards what humans have done in all of the training games. Um, and that, that helps you to predict like what is likely going to happen uh, on the human side and also moves that like might be better for you to do because it's more like what human would do. Right. So self-play um, alone doesn't work with these multiplayer games, in those cases, you need to rely on training on human data to have some idea of exactly. from all of like the almost infinite number of possible moves at any given point, what kinds of moves are relatively plausible, relatively likely. Um, and part of why you have to do that is because the Monte Carlo tree search won't work like it does in other games where you have full information. Yeah. and. And so even in Chess or Go, where you have full information, you can actually still benefit from this in that it will make the planning process um, more accurately predict what humans will do, right? Um, like you're, you're incorporating this, like even if this wasn't like what the model thinks was the optimal move to do, a human may be more likely to still play that move for some reason. Um, it may be that that is actually a more optimal move and like the self-play model didn't actually like learn that, or it just might be that like humans are likely to play moves like that, even if it's maybe not what the model thinks is optimal. Um, yeah. And so we actually had the first paper on this uh, that um, came out like uh, about a year ago. The no press version. Um, yes, and it was specifically ma making this change to the planning process. Um, but what you actually also need to do uh, to get to work really well is also make the change to the self-play process. So during self-play, you can also sample from uh, human actions, so that the model is trained to play against what humans would actually play. Um, and more or less, like the combination of these, uh, like there's more there's more nuance there to make it all work well, but more or less the combination of these where like you are both training against human behavior and planning uh, conditioned on human behavior um, enables you to play much more effectively in a setting where you're going to end up playing with humans. Um, like these bots can play well against other copies of bots, right? But right. Um, when you're going to have to play against humans, you need to incorporate human um, behavior, specifically in these multiplayer settings, and particularly when there's cooperation that's involved as well, because um, you can't like you can't follow human norms of cooperation when uh, you haven't seen any human behavior. Mathematics forms the core of data science and machine learning. And now with my Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course, you can get a firm grasp of that math, particularly the essential linear algebra and calculus. You can get all the lectures for free on my YouTube channel, but if you don't mind paying a typically small amount for the Udemy version, you get everything from YouTube plus fully worked solutions to exercises and an official course completion certificate. As countless guests on the show have emphasized, to be the best data scientist you can be, you've got to know the underlying math. So check out the links to my Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course in the show notes or at johncrone.com slash udemy. That's johncrone.com slash u-d-e-m-y. Um, have other people tried, like, do, are there other bots that people have had for playing diplomacy historically, which obviously could not couldn't come near the level that you guys are playing at, but is that something that you tested against as well, that they're like, in the same way that 
um, you know, the, with chess algorithms or Go algorithms, you have these competitions uh, against, like simulations against other bots? Yeah, so there's been um, a number of more like handwritten uh, diplomacy bots in the past. Um, all, all of this no press, all of this without language. Um, there, the first um, like deep learning based approach for diplomacy AI came uh, from Mila uh, from Montreal. Um, and they published that a couple years ago. Um, and then uh, basically about a year later, um, both us and DeepMind um, then also published uh, different uh, approaches to applying uh, deep learning to no press diplomacy. Um, so we did we do compare against um, their AI. Um, yeah, but there's not it's not like a, a like super rich uh, field of uh, right, right, right. bots in a way that like Go is a little bit more like there's more available chess. Yeah. There's more available. And chess certainly is. Um, and part of why I thought of this question is that when I was a kid, <clears throat> I had this chessboard with uh, magnetic pieces. And so I could play against a chess computer on this physical board. Like it wasn't, I didn't, there wasn't a screen, except that it, it had this little LED display which would say, you know, move something from this square to this other square. And one of the frustrating things for me, play, I never really got super into playing against this chess computer despite me wanting to be better at chess, because I was at this super nerdy school where there were lots of kids that were great at chess, and you'd play at lunch, and we'd have tournaments and stuff. So I was like, oh, I'll get this chess computer. But it would take so long between moves to compute. Mm. Um, so when you guys are designing this, and it has to be able to compete in real time, that must be a consideration that comes up a lot. Like, the like it, it, does, is it effectively real time, or does it, does it need time to process? Yeah, so... Um... The first, uh, so for, uh, a lot of this has to be done uh, offline, right? So um, in order to actually fully understand these models where the point of them is to play against humans, you know, it's expensive to have a human game, right? You have to get six people together. Uh, it's going to take two hours. Um, and so a lot of the work is first on offline. We'll like play the bots against each other right, and right, right, right. Uh, measure things like this. Um, and then finally, when... Um, we're ready, we would set up a series of games. Um, and the culmination for this, uh, for the no press models, was um, a tournament uh, at the beginning of last year. Um, so I think this may have already happened, uh, just or had just finished when we met, um, where the bot actually won the tournament. Um, and we started with a version of the bot that was like lightly conditioned uh, on human play. Um, and it turned out that like, people could actually recognize it. It was like mm. doing things that were slightly awkward and things like mm. this. Um, and then we just turned up the regularization parameter and the planning. Um, and then basically from there, it was very, very good. Oh, uh, cool. Like close to perfect. Um, the best human in the tournament said like, the only way that you could tell which player was the bot by just looking at the moves was who's doing the best, it's probably the bot. Oh, um, wow. And that's Sorry, I'm interrupting you again, but that's it's interesting. That's so different from a game like Go, where um, the AlphaGo algorithm that DeepMind created was described as having like alien moves. And in that kind of situation, where you know you don't need to be negotiating and forming alliances, it doesn't matter that the algorithm comes up with completely foreign kinds of moves. Yeah. But in a game like Diplomacy, where even in the no press game, you're still picking up on subtleties of how people are playing to try to figure out who you should be forming alliances with or whatever, there's, if 
one of the players you're playing with is doing these kinds of alien moves, you probably are inclined to kind of as a group pick on it. Yeah, and I, I do think at that point in the tournament, players may have been intentionally looking for it and intentionally banding together to destroy it because they knew they were playing in the tournament against a bot. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, then, so to actually answer your question, this tournament was uh, five minute turns. Um, and so it's pretty quick. Um, and it does have to make its moves in a reasonable amount of time. On the other hand, five minutes for a neural network to return a move, like not super terrible, especially when it's not doing anything else. Like there was no language at this point, right? right. Um, and so, um, you know, it's not like super cheap, but it's also, it's okay. Um, yeah, five minutes is like a reasonable amount of time to think. Cool. Um, what may, where that got more difficult is with the language model, right? Because uh, right. then you have to respond fast enough for people to respond back to you um, and back and forth. And, so that, yeah, so um, once you jump to the press version, that when you say, like, let's say, I don't know how standard this is, but I guess uh, let's just assume that like a five minute between, five minutes between moves is standard. And um, just to recap for listeners why that's significant is that you have seven players playing, and I guess it's every five minutes that you submit on a yeah. piece of paper, I guess, in real life or something, what your move is going to be. Um, so that whole time, throughout that five minutes, I guess any amount of conversation can be happening. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, this, this is really the hard part of diplomacy, right? Everything I just described, already hard, right? But like <laughs> the, the real hard part is now do all of that while having strategic, convincing conversations with people uh, that can go basically as fast as you can send messages back and forth. Right. Um, and with six people at once. Um, right. And of course in person, um, the norm is usually 15 minutes because then you can have time to pull people aside, talk to them, then go pull somebody else aside. But when you're playing online, you can just type away, talk to all six players at once. And it can be a little overwhelming. You only have typically two or three players who are actually like neighboring you. And so those are usually the people you focus on. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of conversations to be had. There's a lot to do in a turn to like have wow. those conversations and then actually come up with the move that you're going to play. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so like, I guess in broad strokes, how did you guys make that jump from a year ago having a success in the tournament and the no press tournament? It might have even seemed at that time like the gulf from being able to play at expert level in no press to press would be enormous. And yet here we are sitting a year later and you've published on this enormous success of being able to compete in the top decile, right? Of Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah, and so fortunately we were actually working on full press diplomacy in parallel. Um, and so had already been making progress on how, how do you set up these models to uh, actually say intelligent things to the other players and things are really grounded and, and accurate and precise, right? Because I, I think that's a big weakness of these other really large language models is they're very, they're like unbounded in a lot of ways. They have, they get a very small amount of context, um, which is like the prompts that you provide to it. And then they're expected to output something that is like high quality, ideally accurate and things like this. And this is like obviously a huge challenge to do. Um, but how how do you actually get those to work better in a setting where there is more grounding, right? Uh, there's more context. There's um, like in the case of diplomacy, you have you know the game board, the conversations that you've already had, the rules of the game. Um, 
and like then uh, actually like what does the agent want to accomplish in that and how does it do things that will actually help it with that um there's a lot more nuance there but then hopefully you can use that to get the models to actually say something like better than you know spitting out a message that just looks like it could be from a game of diplomacy which that's what you get if you just fine-tune a large language model on diplomacy data, right? It'll yeah, yeah, yeah. say things that sound like diplomacy, uh, <laughs> but it'll, it'll do things like it'll suggest convoying a fleet, uh, which is definitely not possible. It will suggest moving to territories that are unreachable and things like this. Right. Um, so right. completely contradicting the rules of the game, the moves right. that have happened so far. Right, right, right. Because it because that LLM would have initially been trained on like a sense of global geography, not just the geographies of this game. And yeah, it it would yeah its parameters would be tuned on what's possible in a, with a real life fleet as opposed to what's possible in just the game. Yeah, and I think there I don't think there exists enough diplomacy data to <laughs> right. fine tune these models for long enough to actually get them to like one hundred percent accurately uh, say things about the game. Um, right. not, not that I think we got to 100%, but the, the way that we were able to train these models, I think, uh, got them a very large portion of the way there and kind of showed how you can, in a more grounded setting, get the models to behave uh, much better. Um, and, and I think more like intentionally, uh, rather than just like likely tokens after a prompt. Um, right. So uh, you didn't start with like a, a regular LLM that's just trained on internet language, but we've heard a lot in recent years um, about transformer architectures, um, a particular kind of deep learning architecture that is capable of contextualizing over very uh, long uh, passages of text and can carry on long conversations compellingly like ChatGPT can. So uh, does your language architecture involve transformer architectures? Yeah, yeah. So there's there's uh, kind of a bunch of different pieces to our model. Um, on the language side, the foundation is a BART model. So this is a transformer-based model, which is an encoder-decoder, unlike uh, GPT. Um, it so it takes in a context, it encodes a state, and then it can attend to that context in order to fully generate uh, a new uh, output, like in this case, a message. And kind of there. So there's a few different pieces to how we actually use this. So uh, we have that language model, um, but that model needs to know what to talk about, right? So the naive thing that I kind of mentioned before is just feed in the conversation history and the game board state, try and fine tune the model to produce the messages that a human would have produced in that setting. Um, this like starts to look like it's working, but it says things are inaccurate. Um, the other thing is if you're asking that to produce the moves that you're going to make, um, it also is hugely exploitable. Um, and this is kind of like a somewhat known already um, in the language model, like negotiation literature, um, say papers from Mike Lewis, um, where if you put a language model in a negotiation task and you train it on human data and then say, model, thank you for agreeing to this deal that is amazing for me. That, like, I'm so glad we had this conversation and thank you for agreeing to this. Mm -hmm. um, humans actually only say that to each other after having agreed to something. 
Um, and so the model thinks that it has agreed to something and then just gives you whatever you just said. Right? Um, it's like kind of amazing to actually see this happen like, to the model. It's like backdoor. Um, yeah, it is a backdoor. I mean, it, you know, it's like the the like safety skirt prompts, uh, but for negotiation bots. Um, it's just tell them that they've already agreed and they'll just give you whatever you ask for. Um, but so that that was kind of an obvious problem. And so it's kind of like we had to go back and say, okay, what are we going to feed into uh, the language model? Um, and so this is where actually the no press uh, models come in. So we can use those models that are like this um, to generate plans for the model. Mm. And then if they can condition on those plans, then they can now talk about that wow. um, in order to have a more guided conversation. So the no press um, model weights were useful in your press model. Sort of. Um, it, yeah. it required a few more improvements. Like um, in no press, if you're trying to do planning, you don't have to factor in the fact that other people are talking to each other. Um, like other people's moves are, are relatively like, well, they are like uncorrelated because they can't plan them. And so you have to adjust your planning procedure to uh, handle like correlated behavior. Um, and a few other nuances like this that like we had to adapt it um, uh, quite a bit for uh, the, the language setting. Um, but then you can output plans um, and say like, look, this is what I want to do. Now let's talk about this. And in fact, we actually would create per player plans. So if you're France and you want to talk to England, the model will actually output a um, plan that is, here's what I want to do. Here's a move that England is somewhat likely to do. And this is what you should talk to them about. Like it's actually plans both for you and for your conversation partner. Mm. I mean, so it makes the conversations much richer because not only does it have these actually like strategically sound plans to work with, uh, that don't have to be stuck in the language model, but also all this information about like how things are working, what like valid moves are and stuff like this doesn't have to be as carefully encoded into the language model. Because if it is told these are the moves you should talk about, then it doesn't talk about illegal moves because it's, it's looking at the moves it should be talking about. Um, and this grounding helps a lot and it even helps the model to better model the language. Like uh, if you look at, um, the like perplexity, right, or measure of how well a language model has learned uh, a piece of data. Um, providing the model with plans to condition on actually um, lowers the perplexity by quite a bit. Uh, it's easier for the language model to learn the language when it's not also trying to learn the rules. Right. Um, which, so I kind of skipped to the the output of the model, which is you give it plans that can condition on them to produce language, um, but you actually have to teach the language model to do that too, right? Um, so that means we have to stick plans into the training data. And this is actually also hard, right? Um, like the data you start with is here is the conversations that people had and here is the move that they made. But like the move that they made is not necessarily what their plan was when they sent that message. Um, and so we have to kind of do this like uh, wow. inference of what was the person likely to do in the, like what were they trying to do in this moment? Wow. Um, and kind of say like, you know, what moves increased in likelihood after this move is often, it's like a way that we, we kind of frame it. And Whoa. by inserting that into the training set, then you can condition the language model on those plans. And then at test time, you know, when you're playing a game, That's you can wild. actually feed the plans in. Um, so it's like kind of a complicated yeah. modular architecture here with like all these different steps. But um, by doing this, then you actually get this like very powerful language model. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, 
Yeah, the science paper, which we'll include a link to in the show notes, uh, the science paper that reveals Cicero and describes this uh, top decile performance in uh, press diplomacy, uh, it talks about different submodules coming together um, in order to form the overall Cicero architecture. Um, are you, you've obviously alluded to some of them here. Um, are you able to kind of give us an overall sense? You, you know, we, we, we can't have the podcast episode go on for hours and hours and hours. Yeah. People can refer to the science paper to get all the details. But just at a high level, what are kind of the key sub-modules and how they interact? Yeah, and so th that you, I kind of already hit those at the, at the high level, right? Which is like you have a language model that needs to be trained to condition on plans, which you had to get a separate model to do uh, to infer those. Then you have uh, the planning, um, like strategic reasoning, if you will, model, which consists of um, both self-play reinforcement learned model, which was regularized towards human behavior. Then there's a planning apparatus on top of that, also regularized towards human behavior. Um, and then that produces plans that go into the language model. The language model produces a bunch of outputs. And then we have a bunch of filters on top that help to clean up those outputs before we send them. So right. um, maybe that is doing like one final check for uh, like saying things that don't make sense um, or like are illegal um, and, or are like offensive. Um, we tried to filter out things like that. Um, that's the gist of the architecture. <laughs> um, that's nice that at some point you were like, you know what, we need to make sure that we're filtering out offensive things. That your diplomacy does that happen? Is that a way that we could tell that we're playing against a, a, uh, your agent? Because um, humans might just be like, "All right, f off," <laughs> but yours wouldn't. <laughs> um, I mean, we did the best we could. It's definitely not always perfect, and yeah. some of it is even just like irrelevance. Like uh, there was this one funny example where um, the model uh, either somebody sent it messages too quickly for it to respond, or they just like. Uh, the model had filtered out all of the messages it was going to reply with the first time. Yeah. Um, and then somebody sent this message like, where are you? Like, uh, like I need to hear from you. And the model replied like, oh, sorry, I was on a call with my girlfriend. Like, and it's like, <laughs> okay, that's clearly not true. Right? Like, and, that's wild. And does it make any sense? And we did try to filter out things that like were not actually like in context correct. And right. even like real players would talk about things like Discord channels and stuff that like we don't want to refer to this kind of meta stuff either. It, um, so the, the bot needs to talk about Discord channels in order for it to seem realistic. If it talks about a girlfriend, you know it's lying. Right. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, but uh, so that's kind of like a bunch of the things the filters were targeting as well, right? Just like irrelevant messages that like didn't really make sense because it's so easy for that to hallucinate and make a mistake. Mm -hmm. um, Super cool, Alex. Congratulations on this tremendous accomplishment. I I don't know if you heard this particular episode, but in my recap of so I guess my final episode of 2022, I recapped the enormous achievements and some of those were obvious um, AI models in our space that everyone's heard of like ChatGPT or like Dolly 2 but I included Cicero on the list because this is tremendous and everybody should know about this achievement because it's incredible. Um, so congratulations Alex. What's next um, for you? What kind of research is lined up? Like what you know, having achieved this, you set out on this 10-year project that took three years. 
to uh, to be able to compete at a high level at the most challenging game that you could think of. So, yeah, I mean, was there even <laughs> like as an emotional state once you like published the paper and stuff? Were you, were you kind of like like I don't know when I train when I spend two years training for a marathon and then you finish it and you're like, all right, so now what? <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Um, yeah, maybe I will slightly go back and uh, give just a tiny bit more detail on like how did we know this was actually good right um i think i don't think i actually mentioned that uh, you mentioned it was in the top decile of the players it played against right um but I, I i think that's that's like a good that's a good start right like it 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 was able to play well it was able to win games it was able to perform consistently at a high level um definitely not like there's nowhere near superhuman like we, we would not claim that um there are players that beat it in the tournament that it played in um, but I think the other thing that we we really appreciated was it was actually able to play in 40 games. So that's uh, about 72 hours of gameplay total. Send uh, thousands of messages. Um, we mentioned in the paper, I think it's something like six or 7,000 messages. Um, and was not actually recognized as an AI. Right? Right. Um, so this is something that in particular we're very proud of. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Um, but anyway, so we got to the end of these 40 games. Uh, we were able to publish the results. And absolutely, I, like, I felt a definitely a huge letdown of like, oh my gosh, we made it. Um, and honestly, I, I wasn't even in the project for the full three and a half years. I actually have just been a part of it for the last couple. Um, and so other members of the team have worked harder and longer than, than me. So uh, I... I hope they feel <laughs> just as relieved and proud. And now um, would actually be but, a really good time, maybe even just to mention in that context. So you're a senior research engineering manager at FAIR. So what does that mean in the context of being involved in a project like this? Yeah, for sure. So my role in the project like this is more to uh, make sure the project is running smoothly, that people know what each other are doing, they know what they're doing and why they're doing it. They um, are like getting all the context that they need to do it well, they're getting the help that they need to do it. Um, all of like the, the apparatus around it is moving forward. Like as we're preparing for the launch, working with our product manager, our uh, marketing team, our comms team, um, our video team, and like all of these different roles that uh, come together to actually make the launch successful. Um, kind of helping to make sure that our team is coming to them with all the content that they need, like the, uh, all of that. Um, so you know, helping to grow the careers of everybody in the project as they're going through it and like right. all of that um, kind of normal managementy stuff that exactly has exactly to deal with. Um, and so then so the Cicero project uh, was already going on to some extent and you began working on this perhaps alongside other research projects that you're also managing simultaneously so yeah I had two projects that I was supporting um, during this time, so uh, diplomacy was one, uh, the, the Cicero project. Um, and then the other was a project based in France that was working on uh, automatically proving mathematical theorems. Um, so yeah, they have resulted in NeurIPS uh, last year and iClear this year. Wow. Um, yeah, they, they were able to get to a point where they were able to solve 12 uh, international math Olympian problems. Um, wow using AI and yeah so that, that's exciting as well um, obviously uh, a different topic but yeah um, 
Um, so, all right. So I, I kind of want to give it the, I wanted the audience to kind of have that context around, uh, you know, how you fit into this uh, fair puzzle. But I interrupted you as you were just explaining kind of what was next. Um, yeah, for sure. So I think, um, obviously, we're, we're really excited about and proud of this result. Um, I think there were a few things that we were able to start seeing some signal that they would be interesting, but didn't get to fully explore them. Um, and I, I think um, one big area of that is like, how do you bring reinforcement learning techniques uh, and like planning techniques more to bear uh, in getting good results out of language models? Um, I think like kind of the, uh, like one aspect of this is kind of just like, how do you pour more compute in at inference time and actually get something more out of it? In some ways, this is what we we're able to do with our model, although that's way oversimplifying it, is like by putting all this compute in, in the planning, we can then give the language model something uh, much more like grounded and intentional to work with so that the language model outputs look more grounded and intentional. Um, and I think there, there's still more room to dig into that. Um, like one, one even just interesting technique that, that we tried and were able to get a little bit of initial success in is um, this like value-based filtering. So we trained a value model on the messages that the, the model was sending. And we would say, like, if the message that was sent, um, like, was rated as drastically lowering the model's value, um, don't send that message. Um, and this was actually able to filter out um, messages that were, like, strategically catastrophic. Um, so, for example, if, um, let's say you have uh, a unit that is neighboring two of an opponent's centers, and they also have a unit that's neighboring two of their centers. Um, because our model is always conditioned on the actual plans that it is going to do, um, it doesn't really lie, um, not intentionally. And so it will, what, what can happen is the model can actually like accidentally tell the other player what move it's actually going to do. Um, and if they know that, then instead of a 50-50 shot of blocking, they can actually just go ahead and block the move that the model was going to do. Right. Um, and this a huge mistake for the model to send these messages. And the value-based filtering can actually detect this, that like, the by sending this message, I will more likely have a lower score at the end of the next turn than if I don't send this message, so don't send it. Um, and I, you know, we weren't able to get that to a point where uh, you could actually use that to like choose which message you generate or things like this. Um, but I think there's more there. And I think in general, there's like a lot of room for continuing to look at how reinforcement learning uh, based techniques and how these like planning techniques can improve the outputs of language models. I think we're already seeing this with uh, uh, like RLHF uh, work um, that's happening to tune the outputs of language models like ChatGPT to say things that are more what humans are expecting of them, right? Uh, and examples maybe like if you, if you ask a model like a math problem, um, it maybe is just as likely to, to finish the answer with like a quote, right? Um, I'm actually borrowing this example from Serge AI, uh, who does annotations in this space, um, where they you know, if you say two plus two equals blank, a language model might say, uh, like two plus two equals blank, four plus four equals blank. <laughs> Sam couldn't remember the answer to either one, right? <laughs> um, rather than actually just outputting four, which is what you want. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, all these techniques to try and push language models more towards like what what is the human actually expecting? Uh, you know, there's supervised learning of like instruction fine tuning, there's RLHF to like rank uh, outputs that are like 
as the entirety good outputs. Um, but I think there's still a lot more work to do in this space. Cool. Well, that's exciting. Um, and at the beginning of this conversation, one of the things that I learned is that a lot of this, what seemed to me on the surface to be relatively basic research, basic AI research, does in fact tend to have a lot of applications uh, within the real world, including within Meta itself. So how could this technology, how could Cicero, the work that you've already done and published on, be applied to the real world or the metaverse, say? Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously we only applied it to diplomacy. The actual agent Cicero could only play the game diplomacy. But um, I think what we see here is, is a really convincing example of a grounded language model that actually can have goals and actually execute on them. Um, and so I think uh, other settings where we might see that is like there could be uh, like digital agents in the in the metaverse there or you know even NPCs in a video game is maybe a uh, mm -hmm. more approachable mm -hmm. example where mm -hmm. like you know you you could think of something like you know the you're playing Skyrim or something the guard at the gate perfectly fine for him to just be you know a large like GPT model or something like spouting things that sound like what a guard would say but you don't really need to interact with him but if you talk to like you know the the king of the uh, of the city, you want him to actually be able to have like a back and forth with you of like right. here are the things that he wants. You know he wants uh, someone to go kill this monster. He wants more information on his lost son, um, like all of this. And you want I don't know treasure, uh, new equipment, uh, like the next piece of information move you to the next stage of the quest. And so. You could actually train models knowing that these factors are at play and that conversation should be grounded on them um, and actually generate like much more nuanced, grounded conversations. Um, wow. I mean, so that's maybe like a gaming example, but you could also think of other settings where there's like a virtual assistant of some kind that needs to understand all of the actual context that is at play, what the human is actually wanting, um, and not just be able to produce things that sound like they make sense. Uh, but actually, like, take actions and talk about those actions. And, um, yeah, rather than just kind of, like, the scripted commands that we have today, um, which are more precise, uh, but it's because we can't do things like this yet. That is super fascinating. Yeah, so that is a big limitation that, you know, anybody who spent a lot of time in ChatGPT, sometimes you're getting bits of conversation that seem totally relevant, but other times it's going, it ends up going off-piste. And so what you're saying is that this research, this Cicero research, is helpful because it, it shows that given the right constraints, you can have a grounded natural language model that is uh, specific to some particular kind of task, whether it's virtual, like you're describing some conversation in the metaverse, uh, in some video game, or like a virtual assistant. And this conversation will be um, grounded and factual and helpful and action-oriented in a way that the other kinds of incumbent LLMs uh, often veer astray. Yeah, I, I hope so. Right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah. of course you need to, to like find data that can actually like teach them all to do this, right? Like we talked about having to infer the plans that humans had before they sent a message. Um, like there, there's still like work to do to actually get it to apply to a particular setting. Um, but I think the techniques we showed kind of give you tools in the toolbox for actually doing that. Um, Super cool. All right, so we've learned a little bit now of your role 
in the whole project. So your, your role as an engineering manager. So some specific questions that occurred to me as, as you were talking about that are related to how we tackle big long-term R&D projects like this. So when you set out on what's potentially a 10-year R&D project, how do you decide what to do first? Who is needed? How is the project structured? How do you decide on your R&D roadmap? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in, in this case, you know, I was not I was not there for the beginning of the project. Uh, so I'll kind of, I can infer some of that and then talk about my experience in other projects too. Um, I think here, the starting point looks like a harder version of promise that we already had, right? Um, right, like diplomacy, no press diplomacy in particular was introducing a bunch of difficult problems, um, but that we, they didn't look so different from problems in poker, in Go, in some of these other uh, games that we already work on. So we kind of like can see already the kinds of techniques that we may need to develop to get started. Um, and also uh, to our advantage, like other researchers were also working in the space, right? So Mila had published um, their results and that kind of gives some starting points to the kinds of things that you can try. Um, I think with a research project like this, you don't you don't need to necessarily know the answer to how long it's going to take and like everything that you're going to need now, but you, you can start to look at the problem and like, okay, what are the challenges that we're going to face and what kind of talent are we going to need? Like, okay, this problem is a lot higher scale. We're going to need uh, strong research engineers who can handle that scale, right? Like who can help us to scale up our reinforcement learning algorithms, who can help us to scale our planning algorithms, um, make those faster, make them work better. Um, we are going to need access to GPUs because we're going to need to train like a model for longer in order to deal with this. Um, but also like, ah, like just training it for longer or bigger or whatever, like isn't going to actually enable that full leap. Like you're gonna have to come up with clever ideas to actually do that. And so um, in our case, like the team also had like clever, uh, like game theorists uh, who could come up with like equilibrium finding techniques that like don't, you need to, to use when you can't just, you know, use MCTS like you can in chess. Um, and so there's like, research talent, there's engineering talent that you need. And then of course, you know, looking at what was there, that still only covered no press, right? That there, there wasn't really like substantial language modeling expertise on the team. And so then um, the next step was uh, bringing in a research scientist, a research engineer uh, who had expertise in that space um, and giving them the runway to work on that product of the problem and then, okay, now we need more talent on that side to like bring in another research engineer, bring in another uh, research scientist and like give them more uh, like capacity to, to keep working on that problem. Cool. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that was like <laughs> a very nuanced answer to the, no, the problem. No, that was perfect. But, yeah, that was a huge amount of detail. Um, yeah, it's kind of like finding, finding the mix of talent that you need both uh, like on the scientific side and on the engineering side. Um, you know, getting hold of the compute you need, getting hold of the data you need, but maybe that's always the answer, right? Uh, yeah, but it's kind of nice to hear you talk through it and think through it. Um, yeah, I I learned a lot from that answer, so I'm sure the audience <laughs> did too. Um, um, so speaking more a bit about your background and how you ended up being a research manager, why did you choose to do research at a big tech company as opposed to, say, in academia? Yeah, so I actually joined the team um, straight out of my undergrad. 
Um, and in this case, I, I kind of had kind of a software engineer generalist, but with a great interest in machine learning uh, profile. And the team was basically looking for more engineering muscle to build into the team. So the, at that point, there were a lot more research scientists than, than engineers. Um, and a lot of the engineers were a little bit more focused on infrastructure, um, obviously critical to uh, AI work actually happening. Um, but I, I think they were seeking to build a little bit more of a model where there is a daily collaboration between engineers and scientists. Um, and so joined in that role, um, particularly uh, working in NLP and conversationally, I question answering this kind of uh, work. Um, and yeah, I, I think for me, like, you know, I didn't, I never followed the path to the academic research lab, right? Um, right like, I think right, the, right. the next step would have been to a master's or a PhD. Um, right, 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 right. And, uh, but instead, like, was really excited about machine learning, uh, found this team that was uh, somehow willing to take me on to uh, be a part of that and get into it. And I, I have honestly, it, I've loved it. It's been an amazing lab. Um, their ability to still create a ton of, um, autonomy for the researchers uh, so that they can really like carefully choose the problems that they're working on as like the right problems to push the state of the art in AI forward and mm -hmm. um, still being held accountable for doing that right um, but like having the freedom to, to really like carefully make those choices themselves and not have everything just pushed top down um, well then being able to have uh, strong engineering talent working alongside that um, has yeah. been exciting and yeah, you get access to enormous human resources as well as compute resources. Of course, that academics of course. probably wouldn't have access to. Super cool. Um, and then you're directly tied um, in a way that I wasn't even aware of before we began this conversation today. You are directly tied to real world applications, even in the relatively short term, unlike an academic might be. Yeah, exactly. There, there is always the pull to try and find uh, a way to actually apply your research to a real-world application within the company if you're working on something that feels appropriate to that. Um, there's definitely, you know, there's some research that is super long-term. Um, and to be honest, I actually have not had any impact uh, on a specific product the entire time I've been working there uh, myself. Um, I think <laughs> my next project maybe, but um, the, yeah, not yet. Um, but plenty of my co colleagues have. Um, and I think it is a rewarding opportunity and um, it kind of, Obviously, it like way further validates your research if it actually is uh, helpful to to a product. And so, yeah, it sounds like it's just a matter of time, especially with something like the Cicero project. So, how does somebody become an AI research manager like you have in a big tech company? And related question: Why have you decided to pursue a master's now in computer science, despite getting all of this valuable real world experience? It seems like the work you've been doing over the last years since your undergrad, you know, now coming on eight years at Meta doing research, you've surely learned a ton that you would have done in a master's or a PhD, but you have you are formally pursuing now, you're nearing the end of a master's in computer science at NYU. So there's two different parts of this question. I don't know which you want to tackle first, sure. but like, yeah. Yeah, I can start with the manager question. So um, I think for me, I, really enjoyed the opportunity to shift my focus a little bit from just like how to get things to succeed technically and, and focus a little bit more on how to help people to succeed. Um, 
And right, right, right. like, I think there's always, especially, especially in an environment that is uh, giving so much autonomy to people, um, but still needs to hold people accountable for making research progress. Um, I think there's, there, there can almost be a little bit of a trick to like, how do you do that well? And like, how do you show the work that you're uh, doing is impactful? How do you even like structure your work in a way that like you can uh, describe well how what you're doing is making advancements and things like this? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, right, like rightly rewarding the people for their for their good work, but like that takes a little bit of narrative to it, I think sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I enjoyed like that part of the process, helping people to be successful in that, helping people to grow their careers, helping people to like make connections with other colleagues who are working in a similar space, um, spending a bit more of my effort, like even tracking what my colleagues were doing rather than like focused on what I was implementing, um, working with more different types of roles within the company than I think I necessarily would get to do if I was just uh, doing engineering work. Um, and I think in a lot of ways got to be exposed to a lot broader set of research projects and supporting engineers in different domains and uh, different um, parts of the world. Like I was able to learn a lot more, I think, um, in a broad sense than I would have uh, focused directly on their research engineering work. Um, Love doing research engineering work. Uh, When I find a chance, still do a little bit, but uh, these days that's not that much. Um, But yeah, a, a different career path, like a lot more focused on the people. Um, than on the technical side. And then that that makes the second part of my question kind of even more interesting, which is, so if in this research manager role, you're shifting a decent proportion of your attention towards helping other people succeed as opposed to the technical challenges, why do a master's in computer science instead of Mm -hmm. like, I don't know, like management? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the... I think I felt like there was still room for me to grow technically um, that was hard to do alongside the people work fully. Um, Even just the first time I trained a convolutional network was actually in the computer vision class at NYU and not in my work. Um, And so having that gave me a little bit more like depth in other areas of computer uh, of computer science and specifically machine learning that I wasn't really getting to dig into. Um, I think it's also giving more uh, engineering depth outside of machine learning. Like um, this semester, I am doing classes in uh, distributed computation and multi-core computation. Um, so kind of like core engineering topics that I haven't had as much of a chance to really dig into, but still uh, are critical topics for like working in, with a lot of data, working efficiently with uh, the compute uh, machines that you have. Um, and so, and I, I think like technical managers can make better managers. Um, so I think making sure that I'm still like technically honed and like can really understand what my reports are doing and why they're doing it and like help to counsel them in the right direction and mm-hmm. uh, like makes me a better manager. And so mm-hmm. um, I kind of wanted to make sure that I'm fully there. And yeah, so I think that's a lot of the reasons. Um, yeah, and those are great reasons. So then, uh, for our listeners, a question that I'd love to ask our guests, and since you are a technical manager, you'll be able to answer this, is what kinds of software tools do you use regularly day to day? Yeah, um, so I'm, I'm mindful of the episode that you just had. Um, 
with Keith, I think it was. Keith McCormick. Um, yeah, Keith McCormick. Yeah. And kind of talking about how uh, you guys spent some time talking about uh, no uh, or low code. Um, and I don't disagree with everything with anything he, uh, the two of you said. Yeah. Um, that being said, I think we, we definitely fall into the like cool guys camp where um, we're really like full code. Like there's very little automated tooling. We're, we're like very bare bones in a lot of what we're using. Um, I mean, we're using PyTorch. Um, and then apart from that, like it's up to individual researchers. Sometimes they're, they're using uh, like a little bit of flavor on top of PyTorch, like PyTorch Lightning or something like this. Um, there's like, of course, other libraries and machine learning that we'll, we'll pull from. Um, but there's, there's not much on top of that. Uh, we have some things like Slurm we use for scheduling jobs, right? But like uh, other like data analysis tools, like it's, there's not that much there. Uh, it's a lot of like custom PyTorch. Because I think in a research setting, we really want to have control over every single aspect of what's happening. Um, and the parts that are abstracted away in a more automated tool, which can be um, actually quite good to abstract away. Because uh, uh, like he pointed out, like, you know, it's easy to introduce mistakes on accident in those parts. Um, and if you don't do this very carefully, then uh, your results may literally mean nothing. Um, and those things can make you uh, able to explore complex data um, in a much quicker way. Mm -hmm. um, I think for us, it's like we may want to even be changing those pieces. Um, and so right, like, right. it has to be very much in our control. Um, but so you're using a bit of the PyTorch library. So it assumes that kind of the lingua franca, like in much of AI and data science, is Python. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's close to 100% Python. Every once in a while, somebody will like dig under the hood with something in C++ or CUDA uh, to get better performance. Um, but uh, yeah. Well, awesome. Alex, this has been an amazing conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And we've covered so much ground. I am a much uh, wiser AI practitioner having gone through this conversation with you. Uh, no doubt lots of audience members out there enjoyed it a lot as well. But all good things must come to an end. Uh, and so uh, you get to my final questions now. The penultimate one is, do you have a book recommendation for us? Yeah, a lot of the books I've been reading are uh, textbooks, and I don't necessarily recommend those. Um, but I, <laughs> the one I enjoyed most recently uh, was Starship Troopers. Uh, I spent like a full week weekend just diving into Starship Troopers, read the book, watched uh, the movies, and played through the whole campaign, which was on... Uh, for the video game, which was on sale on Steam, uh, and just like got into it. So that was quite it. fun. Um, <laughs> that's my recommendation. Nice. Uh, and then, how should people follow you? You're a deep researcher, so maybe you know you're not posting on LinkedIn every day like someone like me is. So maybe it's like Google Scholar. Yeah, you, um, you can definitely. I'm, I'm happy to take things on LinkedIn or Twitter, but I do not spend that much time posting on them. Google Scholar definitely is the most up-to-date. <laughs> um, yeah, not, not a huge online presence, but. Nice. Uh, very cool. Alex, thank you so much for coming downtown, recording with me in person, and making this amazing episode on AI research, particularly the Cicero algorithm. Congrats again, huge accomplishment. And yeah, hopefully we can have you on again in a couple of years when you have another landmark AI paper to share with us. Thanks, Don John. Appreciate it.
What an episode and an honor to be able to hear about this state-of-the-art AI research right from the horse's mouth. In today's episode, Alex filled us in on why Meta invests in fundamental AI research, how diplomacy blends risk and poker to create a game that Meta suspected it might take 10 years to master, but they built Cicero to perform in the top decile at diplomacy in just three years. Alex then detailed how the Cicero algorithm works, including its most important submodules and the encoder-decoder transformer architecture that is involved in its natural language understanding and generation. He talked about how low-level Python is the lingua franca of AI research, with Meta's own ubiquitous PyTorch library playing a key role. And he talked about how Cicero could prove useful in the metaverse, as well as real-world applications where actionable, strategic, and highly targeted natural language conversation is desired. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Alex's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 663. That's superdatascience.com slash 663. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. And of course, subscribe if you haven't already. I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by following me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it. Your feedback is invaluable for helping us shape future episodes of the show. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science podcast for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Sylvia, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another extraordinary episode for us today. For enabling that super team to create this free podcast for you, we are deeply grateful to our sponsors, whom I've hand-selected as partners because I expect their products to be genuinely of interest to you. Please consider supporting this free show by checking out our sponsors' links, which you can find in the show notes. And if you yourself are interested in sponsoring an episode, you can get the details on how by making your way to johncrone.com slash podcast. And thanks, of course, to you for listening. It's because you listen that I'm here. Until next time, my friend, keep on rocking it out there, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon. <laughs>